Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained, obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And now we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So over the last number of weeks, Paul has been driving home this doctrine, this truth that we call justification. He uses that word multiple times in the text. He speaks about the reality of us being justified us being declared righteous before God. And if you read the first four chapters of Romans, it's clear that that's our biggest issue, is that we are in a wrong standing with God. We begin in Romans 1, that shows the depravity of men, that without God, we reject not only the true doctrines of God, but we reject the doctrine of nature. We stop using our bodies as they're meant to be used. We stop using nature as it's meant to be used, and we actually pervert it in an act of idol worship. We take what is naturally good and we pervert it, and that's what we get up to without God. So Paul deals then with how do we get from Romans chapter 1, where essentially we're unleashed perverts, to a place where we are right with God. How do we go from one to the other? He says that we can't do it through nature because we pervert nature. We can't do it with our own consciences because even if we invented our own religion, we wouldn't even be the best religious person at it. We fail even on our own standards. And we can't even do it by law. Even when God gives us his law, we cannot fulfill the law. We cannot make ourselves right before God by his standards. So it leaves no options left for the human being. There's no option left for getting right with God unless he provides a way. And that way is faith. That way of acceptance is faith. And he used the story, he couches that doctrine in the life of Abraham. He uses a real person, which is a very effective way of teaching. When you can show a doctrine happening in real time in somebody's real life, it helps us understand it. And what he says is that Abraham did not please God because he circumcised his son. Because he believed in God's promise before he circumcised his son. So what Paul says is, hey, if you just look at Genesis 15 very carefully, what you see is that God was pleased with Abraham before Abraham did anything for God. He was pleased in Abraham because he just believed. If you want to know how to please God, hear this, that it is believing his promise that pleases him. His promise that he will give you inherit, uh, eternal life. His promise that he will forgive your sins. His promise that he will be with you. You believe in Jesus Christ and God is pleased with you. Then we live a life of good works. We live a life of lawfulness, of course, after that. But that is not how we please God. And Paul has taken great uh, pains to communicate this. And if you want to introduce the hope of the gospel to a sinner, to a lost person, you begin the way Romans does. You say, look at the world. Look at how people are doing when they reject God. 
they become literally crazy. They are given over to their lawless idolatry. They become morally insane. They become depraved. They become unleashed in wickedness. That's not hard to communicate to people, especially those who are living in the throes of that kind of sin. They get it. So start the way Romans does when you're sharing the gospel with somebody in your life. Start the way Romans does and say, look what, look where godlessness leads you. When you push God out of the way, look where the world goes. He'll say, yeah, I kind of get that. And then move from that to talk about how to be made right. And that is through Christ. And so Paul today, having talked about how Jesus makes us right before God, he gives us <clears throat> the kernel, the, the sort of the, the reality that that produces in our lives. And that is, and I've titled my sermon, Peace with God. That's the drop from this doctrine of justification. That's the consequence of becoming a Christian. You get this one thing. You get peace with God. You get peace with God. So Paul drills down into that reality, reality today. What does peace look like between you and God Almighty, who you've never seen, you've never touched? You know, he, he doesn't have a, you know, a kiosk at a mall somewhere. How do you have peace with this God who is sort of over and above us and through all things? How do we get peace with this God? <clears throat> Paul sets up three wonderful contrasts in this text. Number one, we have, overarchingly, we have peace instead of hostility. Number two, we have grace instead of wrath. And then number three, we have hope instead of gloom. We have hope instead of gloom or dread. Those are three ways that peace with God transforms your life today. So diving in, let's look at the peace instead of hostility. This is right in verse 1, Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> if you drop that Bible verse from an airplane you know, onto a remote area of the world. There's enough information in there to start a church, all right? If there's one Bible verse that fell down from heaven and landed in your palm, you would need maybe this one. You're justified by faith. You have peace with God Almighty, and it's through the man, God, Jesus Christ. That's the bare bones. That's what you need. But this really speaks to the, <clears throat> the overarching reality of all that God does for us. And just pulling out of Joshua 24 that we just read, what is this peace that we're talking about? Why are we concerned about peace? Well, because when God brought Israel out of the wilderness and he delivered into their hands this beautiful land, he gave them everything they would ever need. He gave them cities they did not build, vineyards they did not plant, and lands that they did not earn. God said, it was not your sword, it was not your bow, it was what I did. I drove them out with hornets. <clears throat> and then Joshua says, because God did all this for you, you now have an obligation to serve him. You are now bound. You are now expected to serve this God, of course. What other expectation would God put on his people? I did all this for you. Now you serve me. You ought to become my people. And the people of Israel say, of course we'll serve the living God. Why wouldn't we? He's been with us all this time. 
<clears throat> and Joshua, being wise, says, before you make that promise, you need to recognize this God is not messing around. This God is not flippant about who he is. This God is not eh, close enough. He's a jealous God. He's a holy God. Are you sure you want to make that promise, Israel? Because Joshua says, if you make this promise and then you forsake him and go for false gods, it says that because he has done all this good for you, he will turn and consume you. <clears throat> he will become your enemy, this living God. If you have tasted the goodness of God and then turn to false idols, you will become his enemy. That's the hostility that we have in front of God when we think of him. You know why? Because we're all idolaters before Jesus Christ. We are all sinners. That's what Romans 1 is all about. <clears throat> we are all lawbreakers. We are all unfaithful to God. All of us are witnesses against ourselves that we have broken God's law. And so Paul says, having been justified, <clears throat> we now have peace with God. We're no longer his enemy. We're no longer in a war against God. We are no longer set against him and he against us. Now, before we move on, we have to note that this passage begins with a therefore. And we have to see what, what does therefore mean. Paul is saying, in light of what I've just said, this is what you should know. I've taught you the idea of how you become right with God through Jesus Christ. That's called justification or being justified. Therefore, because we're made right with God, we are now at peace with God. And just as a general note, I like this because as Christians, often our learning takes place well after the fact. Therefore, having been justified, past tense, we now live at peace with God. You know, that's so critical in my life where things have happened to me. God has done a mighty work in my life. God saved me. And I didn't even know how it happened. I didn't understand how God worked. I didn't understand the doctrine of how he saves me or what he gave me in Christ. But as I live my life, I begin to learn things. And we need to remember that as Christians, and especially dealing with other Christians, is that they might not get all of the things in the scriptures about how they were saved. We don't have doctrinal precision and clarity, you know, the moment we come to Christ. And I don't either, and neither do you. And, and so there's this graciousness that, especially I think now that we need to deal with other people to say, okay, you don't fully understand how this all works, but that's okay. We can learn as we go. And I think that's part of this retrospective look that Paul has. Having been justified, we now have peace with God. So you can fill in those gaps as we grow as a church, that's why we pull the word of God out every week to figure out what God has done with us and is doing. And so he says, having been justified by faith, and again, we need to remember that he used Abraham as the character to prove that to us. God made a covenantal promise to Abraham, he said, um, that I will make a covenant with you between you and your ancestors. I will make you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And then he says to us, you can have the same assurance, the same covenantal assurance as Abraham had. You can be included in God's covenantal faithfulness, which is the inheritance that he promised Abraham, which is the whole world. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And it's eternal life. 
It's not just a country that we get to go to and then live until we're 80 and then die. The inheritance that God promised Abraham is the whole earth and it is eternal life. We will live there together forever. Me and you, if you're in Christ, we'll be neighbors or at least we'll get to visit each other or we'll have lots of time to do it because our inheritance in Christ is real, it's tangible, it's the world, and it is everlasting. Which means if we are in Abraham, if we are of the same faith as Abraham, then we are also entitled to the same promises that Abraham received. Do you see that? If we are of the same fabric as Abraham in faith, then we are entitled to the same inheritance. And I just want to be careful to say it's not that we are entitled. It's not that God owes us something. We're actually going to deal with um, our merit or the qualification of where we get our merit, where we get our right standing. That actually comes through Christ. That's later in chapter 5. But that we await with confidence our inheritance. Did you know that, um, as best as I'm aware, there is no other religion on the face of this earth that has any assurance of anything. Muslims will tell you that they 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 hope when they meet um, Allah that that He will be merciful. They hope that their good works will outweigh their bad works. The, the Buddhists have a hope that they will one day reach, you know, their paradise. There, every religion outside of Christ has a hopefulness, but zero assurance. The Christian, just like Abraham, has a confident awaiting of our inheritance. We know it's coming. We know that God is going to deliver what he promised to deliver. And so Paul distills this idea of justification, this confidence that we have before God. He distills it down to this one phrase, and that is that we have peace. Now, I want you to be very aware that this is not Hallmark card language. This is not a pretty little doe, a dove you know, sitting on the top of a rose you know, with a glow behind it. This is not some fairy tale, you know, soft type of peace. This is the contrast between the hostility that we once stood before God in. God, between us and himself, had a relationship of hostility, a relationship of contempt because we stood in rebellion against him. Romans chapter 1 says that his wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness. That hostility between us and God is proven by the fact that we live in sin, that we continually go back to our sin. We repeat our sin. We live in that rebellion. And that hostility is not merely because we believed something wrong. You know, that we, we took a test and God said, oh, you don't know enough about me. You know, therefore I'm against you. Our hostility to God was not only in our mind and in our religion and our hearts, but it was in our bodies. We used our bodies as instruments of idolatry. And again, you see that in the world today, that the body is being used as an instrument of idolatry, of, of false worship, of making ourselves an object of worship. The whole transgender movement is built on self-actualization, self-realization, self-exaltation, crafting in our own bodies who we want to be. That is, the, that is the ministry of idolatry. It is literally raising ourselves up above God's plan. 
Romans chapter 1 says that is God's wrath being revealed. It's bad news that proves to us how far we are from God. We manipulate not only the purpose of our mind and our heart, but our bodies. That's Romans chapter 1. And then Paul says, between then and now, we, we, have, we have been brought into peace. We have been brought into a right standing before God. How do we get there? Who, who mediated this peace? Have you ever gotten a fight with your brother or your sister? And the only way out of it is to have mom or dad come in and actually mediate. It's okay. Who took what? Who said what first? You know, how did, who hit who first? Let's sort this out. A mediator is necessary between two people who are at war. In our case, where did this peace come from? It was not merely arbitrarily bestowed from God. It's not like a peace bomb just dropped from heaven and went off and suddenly there's peace. It says we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. He alone mediates peace between you and God. He is the only answer. He is the only means that human beings have to have peace with God. Paul emphasizes this ex explicitly, that we can only enjoy this peace through Jesus Christ. He's called in Isaiah 9-6, he's called the Prince of Peace, this Messiah. Psalm 72-7 says that in his days shall righteousness flourish and abundance of peace. Christ brings peace. But not the kind of peace that we might imagine as you know, fans of the UN or, you know, you know peacemaking missions or, or that kind of thing. He makes peace between you and God and between you and your brothers who are in Christ. He breaks down hostility between you and God, which breaks down hostility between you and other believers. The ability to overcome human differences exists alone in Jesus Christ. He is the great mediator. He did it by means of his blood. Jesus himself, when he was on the earth, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Don't be deceived by people who lie to you when they say there are other ways to God. God does not have some sort of squishy category for people who don't have anything to do with Jesus, but they sort of try hard. Paul already dealt with that earlier in the passages. He said, there is nobody who lives up to any standard of any kind. If you do not have Christ, you do not have God. Period. End of story. Jesus Christ is the mediator who brings us peace before God. And what does this peace feel like? Well, it's in your conscience. Do you remember what it was like living before you found Christ? Do you remember what it was like when you would engage in sin, when you would live your own way? What your conscience felt like? What does your conscience feel like when you disobey God? When you violate his world, his laws? It feels like guilt. It feels like condemnation. It feels heavy. It feels lonely. Hosea the prophet said, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. So when you sow into sin, you get back the whirlwind of a ravaged conscience, disruption in your heart, sleeplessness. That's hostility to God that you're feeling. That's what that is. And only Christ can quiet that and absorb that guilt and say, I have made you right before God. 
Take my peace and make it yours. Martin Luther, who, by the way, is not Martin Luther King Jr. This was brought up a couple weeks ago. Um, that man lived about 60 years ago. I'm talking about Martin Luther, who lived 500 years ago, the reformer. When I quote Luther, it's always Martin Luther, never Martin Luther King Jr. just want to make that clear. Martin Luther said, a man who is made righteous before God enjoys peace before God, but distress with the world. While a wicked man has peace with the world, but has disturbance with God. That's the only way to live. There's no two ways to live. You can have peace with God and be hostile, have the world be hostile toward you, or you can have peace with the world and have hostility toward God. It's like Joshua said, choose today whom you will serve. Christians, through Christ, enjoy the only type of peace that matters. And so, friends, when you meet people who are struggling, trying to make sense of the world, trying to bring themselves peace, and we know, I know people personally in my life who they work on meditation, they work with, you know, rock crystals, they work on visualization, they work on positive thinking, they have so many methods to try to quiet the conscience. And it only ends up in more insomnia, more guilt, more expensive psychological counseling, because they don't come through the mediator. They don't come through the peacemaker, Jesus Christ. So hold tight to that. Give people that gift. Here is the peacemaker. His name is Christ. So number two in verse two, we, we also have grace instead of wrath. It's a similar idea, wrath, hostility. It's sort of the same idea, but what is wrath? What is wrath? It's, 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 the, it's the future expectation of God's judgment against sin. All of us want a God who punishes sin, right? As long as it's somebody else's sin. All of us want a God who's going to bring justice as long as it's for the wrongs committed against me. But we have a truly righteous God, a truly just God who will punish every sin according to his standard. And before we are in Christ, the Bible says that we are already under his wrath. We are, we are marked out for wrath. We are marked out for judgment. We are marked out for eternal punishment. John 3.18 says anyone who does not believe is condemned already. You know, John 3.18 is on the heels of the most famous and, and loving verse in the whole scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will never perish, but have everlasting life. And then he goes on to say, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Very sharp words from Christ that if you are not in him, you are already sealed in your destiny of death. Sealed in terms of what you can do. The only way to break that seal of condemnation is, again, to be freed from that wrath. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. How many remember just being living in the lust of your flesh, indulging in the flesh? We were by nature children of wrath. We're born children of wrath. Not only do we have the wrath of God resting upon us, but we're born as wrathful children. Some of you might say, my kids are wrathful, especially if they don't sleep well, especially if they don't get their breakfast by 9 a.m. Wrath is, we understand that. What's a child of wrath? It's a child out of control, a child unrestrained 
by grace and by salvation, by the light of knowledge of Christ. That is us. But what does verse 2 say in Romans 5? Through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So he says, through Christ we have obtained peace, but we've also obtained grace. You get peace with God, but you also get grace that you stand in today. Remember, Romans chapter 1 says that the wrath of God is already revealed in, in that our sin is proof of God's wrath. It's already revealed. And that when we're living in that sin, the expectation of God coming in Christ back to get us is fearful. It's like if, if mom and dad go out and you're left at home for the first time, maybe you're 14, 15, or 16, and it's your first chance to impress mom and dad being home alone. If you blow it and throw a party and there's beer cans all over the place or whatever it is, the TV's on, the chips are everywhere, the expectation of mom and dad coming home is not a happy expectation. You may love them and want their approval, but you are not excited for them to come home because you know that you are busted. But what if things are right? What if you've done right? What if you've kept the house clean? What if you've, you know, filed away some of the old paperwork that mom had sitting on the cabinet? You know, then the expectation is exciting. The expectation is I can't wait for them to come back. The Bible says that when, when Christ brings us into grace, it changes our expectation of God. He no longer becomes somebody that we fear and that we don't want to be around. We are actually excited about the revelation of his glory. We're excited about his presence because we're no longer condemned. His presence no longer illuminates our guilt. His presence instead excites us. He says, we stand in this grace and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's a source of hope and fulfillment rather than wrath. This word grace um, in the Greek is karen or charis. It's a word that means to, to cause favorable regard. Now, in natural terms, what would cause favorable regard when your parents come home from work? It's having done all the stuff right. Having, you know, kept the house clean. You didn't need all the ice cream in the freezer. That would cause favorable regard, as I know, as a parent. I'm very pleased when my children do what is pleasing in natural terms. But God's grace finds the mess, cleans it up himself, and then looks upon us with favor. That's what grace is. Grace causes favorable regard, that God looks on you with pleasure. Have you ever thought of God looking on you with his pleasure, with his favorable regard? Because he does in the gospel. He does. And that's only because of the work of Christ. We stand in this grace even now. We stand in this right now. It's not purely future. Grace, because of God's favor upon us, it frees us from the expectations and the idols that the world offers. It frees us from slavery to sin. It frees us from pursuing and indulging in everything that we think we want, that our flesh cries out for. Are you hooked on favorable regard from the world? Are you hooked on what people think of you? Are you hooked on what will happen if I obey Christ or speak up for Christ? Then you're not fully appreciating his grace that he looks on you with perfect 
favorable regard. If God looks on you favorably, who cares what the world thinks? Who cares if they favor you? Who cares if you get the perks of the world, the idols of the world? His grace in Jesus Christ has made him look on us with favor. And so that is the grace that we are in instead of wrath, instead of a fearful expectation of God's presence, we await it with joy. Now, finally, we have, as a product of our justification, we have hope instead of gloom. And this is where, this is where I really want to drill down. This is where I really want, this is the tension. This is the hard part of the passage. This is the part that is less intuitive. It's, it, it's kind of easy to talk about peace and grace. We all want that. That's wonderful. We want that with God, and we enjoy that with God. But we have hope instead of gloom. See what Paul goes on to say. We rejoice in the hope of glory. Verse 3. Not only that, you say, oh, what other glorious thing are we going to rejoice in? But we rejoice in our sufferings. Pardon? I, I thought this was all about peace and hope and grace. We're rejoicing in all the power of the gospel. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So very simply, our rejoicing in the hope of glory is the reason why it's the occasion for our rejoicing in trials. People who have no hope of the glory of God also take no pleasure in trials or suffering. That makes sense, right? If there's nothing to look forward to, if there's no purpose in your sufferings, then your sufferings are just useless and inconvenient. They're hard. What's the point? But if you are in Christ and you await his glory, that gives occasion for your rejoicing in your suffering. The Christian life does not mean avoiding or wishing away trials. It is not even, hear this, it's not even overcoming trials. That is not the object of the Christian faith. It is not for you to overcome your trials. Now, we could define that a little bit differently and say, in a way, we are talking about overcoming. But trials are an occasion for rejoicing, say the scriptures. The Christian life instead equips us. It equips us. Have you ever gone to the hardware store before you start a big reno or, or even a small reno? If I'm doing a plumbing job, I need to budget at least five trips to the hardware store because I never get the right elbows. Being equipped for a job is absolutely critical. The job is at a standstill. The, the, the progress is at a standstill without being equipped for it with the right tools and the right materials. The Christian life equips you. It gets you ready to face trials. Do you want to know what the tools are? It's right in the text here. It says we rejoice in our sufferings. This next verb, 
knowing, knowing that is how you rejoice in your sufferings. It's by knowing that suffering produces endurance. It's through knowledge. It's through an awareness of what is going on in the world, what God is doing, how God works. That is how we overcome trials. Not by avoiding them, not by minimizing them, not by trampling over them victoriously, but by enduring them. We do that through knowledge. And I had to ask myself this question as I was preparing. In the Christian life, and I've battled with this, you get the Holy Spirit, right? When you become a believer, God fills you with his spirit. Are all the realities and the characteristics of a Christian, are they all present at the moment of belief? No, they're not. Does that mean we don't have the Holy Spirit enough? No. So I struggle with this because God lives inside of us. So why is it that we have to learn things in order to live the way that God has designed us to live if the Holy Spirit is already in us? The Bible says that we need to know more things about him. Paul prays, I think it's also in Ephesians, that, the, that your knowledge may increase, that your knowledge may abound. Proverbs say that, that knowledge of the Holy One is wisdom. We must, as Christians, learn what is happening in our lives, in God's agenda, in order to endure. You must hear this. this is, again, this is why we crack the Bible every week. You want to figure out what's going on in the world, what's going on in your life? Check the Bible. God equips us to endure our trials, our sufferings, through knowledge of what's happening. Let's talk about trials for a very brief moment. Trials or suffering, they can be anything. Paul talked about having a, a, um, an ongoing thorn in his flesh in the book of the Corinthians that he prayed that God would relieve him of, and it never happened. That was an ongoing health problem. Maybe it was even you know, some form of spiritual oppression. We're not quite sure, but it could have been a physical ailment. But it was ongoing. It was long-term. Suffering can, can take the form of many things, like the loss of a job or the death of a loved one in a family. It can come in the form of persecution or even exclusion from people that you care about or people in the world. It can be a personal ailment, again, a mental or physical ailment or disease. It can be periodic depression or anxiety, just inward turmoil. It can come in the form of marriage problems or injuries or disappointments of many varieties. Our suffering takes so many different forms. That's why we can all throw our cards on the table and relate to this, right? My suffering is not the same as your suffering. Your suffering is not the same as your neighbor's suffering, but we've all done it. We've all got them, right? So this applies to you. What? in the world is going on in my suffering. Why am I suffering? I thought I belonged to the Lord. I thought I belonged to the king who controlled everything. Like, why don't I have a private jet and fly first class? 
Why aren't things lining up for me the way that I want them to? Paul says, you rejoice in these because you know what they're for. You know what these are for. What do you mean what they're for? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. One of the older translations says, hope does not confound us. It does not leave you empty. It does not lead you down to a dead end path. Hope is a real deal. It's the real thing at the end of the road. There's somewhere that we're going. And our trials and our suffering help us get there. Did you catch that? What is the first thing that suffering produces? It is endurance. How does Paul know that every trial produces the same thing? That's not a good question, right? Isn't it a little bit presumptuous to say, I know what all suffering is about. It's about endurance. How can you know that? Because God says so. Hebrews chapter 12 says, he disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, if God does not discipline you, if God does not squeeze you and put you through suffering, you are likely to fall away or it's evidence that you never belonged to him. Paul, uh, the, the author of Hebrews says, if you are not disciplined by God, then you're not a real son. I discipline all four of my children in various ways at various times because I love them. I don't want them to go astray. Our suffering produces endurance. It keeps us on the road with God. It keeps us clinging to the Lord. What's the goal? Our goal is our inheritance, right? Just thinking of Abraham. Abraham wanted to get to that goal. He wanted to get to that multitudinous family and the promised land. He died before he saw it. But what's the inheritance, friends? It's eternal life. It's partnership with Christ for eternity. Christ said in his own words, it is those who endure to the end who will be saved. Friends, endurance is critical to the Christian life. There is no such thing as pray a prayer, get saved, walk away from the Lord, and end up in heaven. There's no such thing. The true Christian is marked by walking in step with the Lord. You know what? I don't care if you feel like you're a lousy Christian, like you've blown it a bunch of times. If you are striving to please the Lord and you're walking in repentance and faith, I give you a big old check mark for assurance. It is the person who does not care for or has any concern for their life. They're living their own way, but they say, well, I, I invited God to be my savior when I was a young boy. So I'm sort of, I'm, I'm set. I give no assurance to that person because endurance is the marker of the trial. In fact, Martin Luther, I also um, love this quote. He said that a trial reveals who you are before God. A trial reveals who you are before God. If a wicked, he says, if a wicked, carnal, proud, weak, and blind man is tested, he will become more wicked, more proud, more weak, and more blind. Have you ever seen a trial simply embitter a person? makes them angry. It drives them away from people. It makes them hostile. That's a person who is not right before the Lord and their suffering is merely God's judgment. 
But a person who is spiritual, strong, wise, and humble, when they are tested, they become yet more strong, wise, and humble. Psalm 4 verse 1 says, When I was distressed, thou hast enlarged me. When I was distressed, I became strong. Psalm 66.10, I just want to read this quickly for you. This theme is all the way throughout Scripture. We are not to lose hope in trials. We are to rejoice in them because of what the Bible promises they are doing. Psalm 66.10 says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. And then down in verse 19, but truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer and he is my steadfast hope. Roland for us a few weeks ago spoke on First Peter 1, starting in verse 7, so that says that so so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of God. Do you know why you're tested? It's to make sure that your faith is the real deal. It's to make sure that you know you belong to the living God. That's why we rejoice in them. Because when you go through suffering and you cling to God, you rejoice because God is the real deal to you. You understand him. You have believed in him. You are clinging to him. Faith is critical as being tested through suffering. Finally, Acts 14.21 says, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So simple. We don't get there apart from suffering. That's the world that we live in. Our destiny which is the hope of the glory of God, <clears throat> when we meditate on that, gives us strength for today. So our future hope has consequences today. It's the perfect balance. It's the perfect balance between triumphal longing in the future, yet grounded, nitty-gritty, day-to-day life in the trenches. The Christian life is both. Our trials shape us. They press us into endurance. They make us tough. Christians need to be tough because toughness brings good character and character is who you are on the inside. And God, through your suffering, is making those things a reality. He is crafting in you his son, the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He is crafting that in you. So I, I, I don't know how related this is, but it just came to mind that passage in Matthew chapter six, where Jesus said, the birds do not worry. The lilies do not toil. Your father feeds and clothes them. So many of us, you know, when, when we're facing just multi-layered suffering, sometimes it, we can get through one trial at a time, but sometimes the layers, they just build up and it becomes more complicated and more distressing and more pressing that we even have the mental capacity to process. And that's when we think, okay, God, now this is my limit. I can rejoice in the one or two sufferings, but this is ridiculous. 
Your father clothes and feeds the lilies and the, and, and the birds. He cares for us. He's not letting you go in your suffering. Why? Because character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not leave you abandoned. It does not leave you to your own devices. It's not a false promise. And why is it not false? Because his spirit in us now is the assurance of the hope that is coming. When you are in Christ, you begin to taste paradise. You begin to taste your new nature. You begin to see God working in you. You begin to see some of your old ways die away as you begin to walk in the new life that God has given you. You begin to live as a heavenly man or woman even now because the spirit is doing it. And that is the hope of the assurance of our one day destiny in God. When you belong to Christ, his spirit inside of you, which is another translation says his spirit is shed abroad in our hearts. It's like his spirit kind of floods every part of our faculties that everything is thinking in terms of God's mercy and grace upon us, even in the midst of what is difficult and dark. And so I'm just going to wrap up by saying that so much of the Christian life actually hinges on knowing what things are about. When you have some vague idea that the, that the Holy Spirit is just going to kind of impart to you this disembodied courage, that's not exactly how it works. The Bible says that you are able to face these things when you know, when you study and understand and meditate on the things that God has promised in his word. And so dig into the scriptures and believe. Don't be dismayed by what seems incidental or inconvenient or even downright tragic. Don't be dismayed. God has not abandoned you. He has not taken his hand off of your life. He has not let you run off into the, the dark, shadowy corners. If you are in Christ, you are in, the, you are in his hand and held until the last day. Jesus said in John 6, I will raise him up on the last day. Christ will personally resurrect your body. When all the trials are over, when you finally reach the quietness of death, you will be raised by Jesus Christ himself into eternal glory. You are not lost or forgotten. And finally, and I, this is the application to every single sermon, that Christ is Lord over every detail of your life. He is Lord over the suffering. He is Lord over your miserable boss or your lovely boss. He is Lord over the tragedies and the hardships that you're facing in your body. In the loss of a loved one, he is Lord over these things, and he will not waste any molecule of suffering. He will not waste it. He is using it to craft in you a character that is ready for heaven and paradise. And friends, there is no other way to live that gives you that hope. There is no other way to live that will produce in you what God promises to do, which is to form Christ within you. All the other self-help is just external habits changing here and there, maybe getting a different haircut, maybe taking some behavioral modification pills or something like that. It's all superficial. God, in our suffering, produces in us an eternal, glorious transformation. And so we need to rest in that. And I would say especially in these, especially in these days. And as we look forward, friends, and I, and I, and I don't want to fail to say this. 
We're going to actually look at this more next week. The day that you are raised to life in Christ is the day the fight really begins. It's the day the battle really begins. And as we look ahead in our time and our culture, it is not the time for the church to sit back and shelter in and just hope that everything works out. The battle begins when Christ raises you to life. That's when we go to war against sin in our own lives and in the world. We begin to truly live as instruments for him when we receive new life. Again, the Christian life is not a Hallmark card. It is the defeat of sin in your life, the crafting of Christ within you in order that you will live for him and for his purposes, whatever the cost. Whatever the cost. And I just close. I just was reading... Um, some Charles Spurgeon last night. I was feeling a bit discouraged and uh, Shannon got me this little biography book on Spurgeon and, and Hudson uh, Taylor and some others. And, you know, Charles Spurgeon died when he was 57. And when you, and, and he died of gout and all, rheumatoid arthritis, he died a very painful death. His wife was rendered an invalid. Uh, sorry, I don't know. Is that outdated language? Um, she was paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, only 11 years into their marriage and she outlived him, but he had to care for her. He died when he was 57 of a painful death. His, when you compile his sermons into books, it constitutes the largest collection of, of writing in the history of Christianity by one author. He started a, a pastor's school, pastor to church of 5,000. He preached multiple times a week. And he suffered, he suffered, he suffered. And he's regarded today as the Prince of Preachers. I think he would laugh at that if he heard it in his own lifetime because he was simply serving Christ. But it was a battle. It was a fight. His faith was tested by various sufferings. And he is regarded in church history as one of the great faithful and productive men as well. And so God uses these things to spur us on, to form Christ in us, to, to work the, the good works of Jesus through us. That's a great hope. And you may think your life insignificant or not useful to God, but if you are in the trench with the church, with Christ, you are useful. You are being used. The Bible says so. Your sufferings are not being wasted. They are being used to craft in you the image of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer.